I'm going to be talking about young men this morning from Proverbs 7. And as I do so, uh, there's going to be a particular um, class of woman that is going to be focused on. Uh, I am not attempting in my preaching this morning to um, imply, nor does the scripture imply, that women are the problem. Okay? Uh, I don't want that to come across this morning. I'm going to give this caveat a couple more times as we hit certain points, because in, in one sense, today, the way women are being raised, there is a real problem that is directly and deeply affecting the young men of society and of this church. Um, to that end, there is going to be this feel at times, perhaps, that I'm attacking women. I, I'm not, nor am I intending to do so. Do I feel as though there are certain aspects of women in our culture that are deeply problematic? The way they're being taught, um, the, the um, general... Uh, mindset of women in this culture, particularly, of course, in the last two years with the Me Too movement, um, that relates directly to where men are and, and some of the struggles that men have, yes. But does that mean that I'm explicitly saying that, that men don't have a role to play, that men are the victims in this? I'm not trying to say that either. So there's a balance here, and I hope that that will come across to some degree, but it is going to lean this morning toward the idea that we need to be thinking about and protecting particularly our young men. This, of course, was a family series message uh, directed toward fathers, but toward directing our men, uh, protecting our men in general and also toward men, understanding some of the nature of the age in which we live as it relates to thought life, as it relates to these things. We live in a very different age. I, I am comfortable saying that it's different than any age in the history of man in that communication and information that people uh, are able to glean today, are able to access today, is, is more prolific than any other generation that the world has ever known. This presents incredible advantages to this generation, the Google generation, right? We're able to know and to look things up. My wife asked me last night, when is Easter this next year? She's fumbling around for calendars and Get on my phone and I say, Easter 2019, right? Boom, April 21st, there it is. Easy, just, just like that. You want to know something, you can know it. Just got back from a long trip. Uh, we took a back road journey um, because we had GPS. And we were connected the whole time. I could go on all these crazy back roads. It was beautiful. We went through South Dakota, um, uh, right by Yankton. Uh, we passed down through northern Nebraska instead of doing the really boring drive down Iowa, 35W, and then across 80, all the way across Nebraska. Not a lot of variety. We, we got to see a lot of variety. Could not have done that before GPS. Uh, would have gotten myself hopelessly lost um, it, with all these back roads, uh, traffic construction, whatnot. Um, very thankful for the technology that we have in this age. However... There are some problems, aren't there, to this particular age? And I'm going to address one of the largest of these dangers uh, today, as I mentioned, particularly for young men. So we have this digital generation, and it affords great access. And uh, there must be some protections. But there's a really big problem, not just in that 
we have access to information like we've never had before, but perhaps even a larger problem is the fact that this generation knows how to access that, the young generation knows how to access that information far better than their parents do. The youngest generation understands that technology far better than their parents do. And so not only is there this proliferation of, of access to information, but then there is a generation gap that means parents are at a tremendous disadvantage as it relates to protecting their children. And that's what we need to talk about today. When it's all said and done, it is the responsibility of the father to protect his children. Fathers, if you're allowing your children to engage in things that you don't understand, particularly as it relates to the digital world, if you uh, have children and they're interacting with digital devices and digital information and you say, I don't get any of that stuff, I'm glad you do, there's a problem. There's a, a necessity to educate yourself to know what your children are interacting with, to understand the dangers involved, particularly in this age. But today I want to help all of us understand these dangers a little bit better, and particularly as it relates to young men. In our application, I'll speak of these particularly in relation to technology, but this principle, the principle that we're going to talk about today, the dangers, and we're going to be talking about thought life, we're going to be talking about sexual impurity, these dangers are not new, are they? Nor has the proclivity for men to be caught up in these uh, just come up in the last hundred years. As a matter of fact, as we walk through Proverbs 7 today, you're going to find that everything that Proverbs 7 warns about, all we have to do is translate it into the digital age and it's word for word. I mean, this has been going on since the beginning, since man fell. And to understand this danger biblically, I want to go to Proverbs 7. If you have your Bibles, you can feel free to turn there. We will have it up on the screen this morning as well, uh, but we are going to park pretty well in Proverbs 7, so you can feel comfortable if you'd like to turn there this morning. And the Bible says this in verses 1 through 5, My son... Keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. So Solomon exhorts his son here to listen to him, to lay up his teachings, to hold them close, to bind them, he says, upon his heart. He exhorts unto wisdom. And he says specifically that this wisdom will keep his son from, and he gives a twofold description. He says, the strange woman, the stranger which flattereth with her words. So we're not just talking about not talking to strangers here, right? The strange woman or the stranger that flatters with her words. So this is intended, the stranger that flatters with her words is intended to describe what he means when he says the strange woman. We're talking about uh, a woman which I uh, have given various um, labels to in various sermons over time. Oftentimes I'll call her the willing woman. The woman uh, who is seeking for attention. The woman who is seeking to prey upon the affections of men. There's a warning against this kind of a woman. Unfortunately, in our society today, these lines have been blurred a little bit. We're going to talk about that in our application. So when the Bible speaks of wisdom, 
We understand the very foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. Wisdom is not just knowledge, it is understanding. Oftentimes people will describe wisdom as applied knowledge. When you take what you know and you allow it to influence the way that you live your life. Wisdom is when you take knowledge and you understand what's trying to be... Uh, get, trying to be said to you and then it affects your life it roots itself in you Proverbs 4 verse 7 says that wisdom is the principal thing he says get wisdom and sell it not wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom and with all thy getting get understanding if you have no talents if you have no beauty if you have no capacities at all and yet you have wisdom you are a man or woman that is deeply blessed wisdom is the principal thing And the greatest thing about wisdom is God promises to give it to us if we'll ask for it in faith, if we will obey his word. Wisdom can be grown. It's not something that you're born with. Well, he just was born with more wisdom than I would. No. Wisdom is something you obtain. In Proverbs, Proverbs speaks of wisdom as a commodity. Something to buy wisdom and sell it not, Proverbs says. Wisdom is more precious than silver and gold. That wisdom is something that you glean, that you gain through the fear of the Lord, through asking the Lord. So Solomon says that he's about to give wisdom. And this is very important here, that we understand wisdom. Continuing in verses 6 and 7, the Bible says this. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. So the warning comes from Solomon's own observations. He says that he saw a young man and that this young man was void of understanding. He did not have wisdom. And he says he discerned this among the youths. Youth are notoriously lacking in wisdom, right? And youth are notoriously lacking in wisdom for two distinct but interrelated reasons. Reason number one is because they lack the experience that builds wisdom. By and large, what we understand from from life, from Scripture, is that wisdom is built in part by experience. The more you live, the more you grow, the more you understand. So that somebody comes up to you and says, look, son, I know that this is the way you think right now, but as you get a little older, you're going to find that things are a lot different than what you thought. And of course, the young man says, oh, whatever. But he... what, What the people who have lived longer are attempting to do is they're attempting to say, I've made the mistakes, I've seen life, I've seen how it plays out, and things aren't quite the way you might perceive them right now. Listen to me. Now, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they contradict Scripture because experience is not the best teacher, um, as many people say. But experience does build wisdom. Uh, so one of the reasons why youth are lacking in wisdom is because they, they haven't lived very long. They don't have wisdom because they don't have the, the trail of life to back it up. The, the second reason youth lack wisdom and this is more of a primary reason, particularly as it relates to, uh, say, young people that are in church homes. The second reason why youth lack wisdom is because they lack the humility to trust the elders in their life. They lack the humility to say, I am going to trust what others tell me above what I think or want. Wisdom comes with experience, 
And that wisdom can oftentimes be accompanied by regret, right? The wisdom that comes with experience is often accompanied by regret. You make the wrong decision, you learn from that wrong decision, you say, now I understand because I made the wrong decision. That young people finally figure out something is wrong when they've tried it and they found it wrong. This is where a lot of uh, wisdom comes from. But the wisdom that comes from teaching is far more valuable, is it not? This is the wisdom that is given to someone before they make the mistake. That if they have a heart of humility willing to accept it, and it's more difficult to accept, they will avoid the snares of life. So as Solomon is speaking to his son here, he is speaking, by the way, by experience, right? We walk through Ecclesiastes. We remember that Solomon, had, he, he wanted to test wisdom. He'd been given wisdom and he wanted to test it, so he went and he pursued the life of, he, he pursued alcohol and he pursued women and he pursued building projects and he pursued lavish um, um, riches and, and he says it was all empty. So now he's writing, presumably later on in his life when he came back to the Lord, and he's writing and he's writing this wisdom and he says, if you'll listen to me, then you won't have to go through this yourself. Young people, this is the harder wisdom. This is the wisdom where you simply have to trust that what the Word of God says is true. That what your parents are attempting to teach you is true. But if you can glean this wisdom, and it's not easy, you will find reward. So Solomon looks out his window and he says, there's a young man and he's devoid of understanding. He has not yet made the mistakes to understand his mistakes and to say that was dumb. Nor has he listened to the counsel of those who have told him not to do this. And how does he know that this man is void of understanding? Well, he knows this because of what is going to happen next. We continue reading in verses 8 and 9. The Bible says this. As we continue, let me start back in verse 6 for context. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding passing through the streets near her corner. And he went the way to her house in the twilight in the evening in the black and dark night. So Solomon sees a young man passing near the corner of her house. We don't have an introduction yet to her, but we know from the context who her is. This is from the strange woman. This is from the stranger which flattereth with her words, right? This is the strange woman. And so Solomon steps out. He's looking at his porch at night, and he sees this man, young man. And this young man is walking toward the corner of what Solomon knows is a strange woman, of a woman that flatters with her mouth, of a predator, if I may use that word. And Solomon says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But this kid, he's not, he's not thinking. He thinks he's going to be fine. He thinks he can handle it, whatever the case may be. He's going there to make matters worse. We get the timing as well at night. He's going there in the twilight in the evening, in the black and dark night. Why? Why does that matter? Well, because light exposes darkness, right? People are always more comfortable doing wrong in the dark. Strange thing, right? Harder to be seen. It's a way subconsciously that we cover our shame. Of course, the thief comes in the night because he doesn't want to be seen we do things in the darkness that we don't want revealed in the light. So this is the scenario. 
He's walking near the house of a certain woman, a strange woman, as darkness falls. Continuing in verses 10 through 12. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So here we find the character of this woman whose house is near the street on this corner where the young man is walking at night. The Bible says she has the attire of an harlot. She's a woman of immorality and promiscuity. She is a prostitute. She's a harlot. And notice how she's described as a woman who looks a certain way and as a woman who is of subtle heart. A woman who is of subtle heart. She knows how to get her way. She knows how to influence people. This is the idea from verse 5, that she flatters with her words. What else about her character? So she is a woman that is dressed in a manner that is intended to to, um, work toward her intended end. We're talking about flattery. We're talking about subtlety. We're talking about allurement. This is how she's dressed. Solomon looks at her and says, she's dressed like a harlot. And then he says she has a subtle heart. And we see, parenthetically in the King James, a description of what this means. She is loud and stubborn. Far from the character of a virtuous woman, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, the woman that has a meek and quiet spirit, which the Bible says is, in the eyes of the Lord, of great price, she is a woman who is loud, and she is a woman who is stubborn. She is boisterous. She is opinionated. She is loud. She uh, is vocal. The implication is that she's very forward. She has no propriety. She has no discretion. She has uh, no understanding of of, or she has understanding, she has no, no, no care for the propriety or the expectations that might be placed upon her. She's lying in wait. She's looking for something. And more specifically, she's looking for someone. Let's continue. I keep wanting to jump right to the application, but let's continue. I, I hope you're already making connections to culture. As you read this, are you already making connections to culture? I hope you are, because it's everywhere here. I just want to make them, but we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to do this uh, in order here. Verses 13 to 15. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. As the narrative continues, Solomon watches this harlot and this young man. He's walking by her corner. She's there. She grabs him. She kisses him. She is very forward with him. She begins speaking to him, and it says that she's speaking to him with an impudent face. An impudent face is an expression that lacks modesty. It lacks humility. It's an expression of an immoral purpose. She is looking at him in a manner as if he is, he is sexual prey that she is seeking to allure him, that she is going out of her way to draw him, that she has a face of personal determination unto evil as she approaches this young man and she presumptuously kisses him. Now again, this man was just passing by the corner, right? We see nothing in the text that says he was trying to get the harlot's attention, but Solomon says he's a fool for passing by the corner because he should have known better because he should have known what kind of woman this is 
and what she would seek to entice him to do, he should have stayed away from the corner. We see that as we continue in, in I don't know if we're going to, um, how, how long we're going to spend on that. But the, the idea here is that she grabs him, she kisses him, she has an impudent face, she is seeking to allure him. And notice what she says. She says, I have peace offerings with thee, with me. This day I have paid my vows. The concept of peace offerings in Israel was that you would take a portion of an offering and you would give it to Jehovah. You would burn it on the altar. Then you take another portion and you'd give it to the priest to eat. And then you take a portion and you would eat it yourself. And this was intended to be a means by which to make peace with God, uh, a means by which to uh, have your sins atoned. So what this woman was doing is she was giving a false impression of her intentions. And again, we see, you see this in society all the time. It's the person who at the end of the night says, hey, would you like to come up and have coffee? When what he's really trying to do is get her into a position where they're alone. Except in this case, we're talking about the woman to the man. And so she, what she says is this. I've paid my vows today. I've had my peace offerings. Implication, they're supposed to eat it after sundown. I've got this thing to eat. I can't eat it all. Why don't you come with me? Why don't you come eat this with me? Why don't you come do this with me? Also, the idea of pious, not just that it needs to be eaten, but that she is regarding the expectations of the law. Why should this young man join her? Well, because she has these pious peace offerings to eat. It needs to be eaten. There's no way to do it alone. How often have men and women been ensnared in sexual sin by falling for these explanations of the wicked and immoral that seem to be fine, that seem to be virtuous, that seem to be innocent enough, but in, in fact have ill intent behind them in order to draw, in order to allure, in order to entice. Innocent intentions, which are no more innocent than a mousetrap. Innocent men and women are lured with promises of virtuous enjoyment only to be ensnared in the bondage of wickedness. And that's what we see here. We continue. Uh, as we, we continue walking through verses 13 through 15. Notice the next thing that she says. Therefore I came forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, I have found thee. She's speaking here as if she actually cares what man walked by her corner. But she doesn't, does she? She doesn't care which man it is, but she's telling him, I want you. I've been waiting for you. Perhaps you are on email and you've gotten this spam before, right? Waiting for you. As if the person on the other end of that spam email actually cares who it is they're, they're ensnaring. As if the person on the other end of that reply actually cares who it is they're alluring. But this is a tactic of the immoral that they make you feel special. As if they care about you. This is what this woman is doing here. You see how human nature hasn't changed? This is the same tactics. It's always the same tactics. What is he for her other than prey? The wolf does not choose carefully his sheep other than perhaps to find the one that's the weakest so that he can eat it easier. An immoral woman 
regardless of what she says, cares no more for the object of her immorality than the wolf does for the nature of his next kill. So she lures him, lures him with her impudent face, with her beauty and her charms, with her flattering words, with, with her desire to, to, to convince him that, she, that he's special, that she was waiting for him, that she wants him, that she has, has everything prepared for him. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She states her case with assurances of her preparations. If I may translate these two verses into the modern language, she's effectively saying, I've got everything ready for us to have a really great time. For a good time call. Come now. Everything is prepared. And remember, it's for you. It's for you. I want you. These allurements. Verses 18 through 20. Come and let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love, for the good man is not at home, for he has gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. Plot twist. This woman is not a businesswoman exclusively. She is not a woman in a house of prostitution. She is a woman who has a, a good man, whether that's husband, master, whatever it might be. She's under accountability. This is a woman who allures when he's not around. This is a woman who is going outside of perhaps her station in life. This is a woman who is going outside of the expectations upon her to allure at times when accountability is least. This is not just a woman who has chosen a profession of ill repute. So she gives her biggest argument. She allays the final fear of this man as he goes by the corner. First, he says, I'm strong enough, I can handle it. Goes by the corner, all of a sudden this woman is very alluring. Oh, she wants me. She cares for me. She's alluring me. She's prepared herself for me. She's paid her vows. Someone's got to eat this food. All of these things, right? But the final thing is, what if we get caught? So she's trying to get rid of that final hurdle, the biggest one, the biggest bump in the road. What if we get caught? He's gone. The good man is gone. And he took a lot of money with him. And he's not going to be back until it's all gone. He's going to be gone a long time. I have my assurances that he will be. He's not going to surprise us. He took his bag of money. He will come at the time appointed. He won't come before that. We're safe. No one's going to know. So she allures him with the comfort of anonymity into a secret affair of immoral passion. She uses word, the word love, which of course is defined entirely differently by the world than it is by the Word of God. This is nothing having to do with true love. We define love at Legacy Baptist Church in a biblical sense as um, the idea of a choice. It is a purposeful choice to do what is best for the object of your love, regardless of self-interest or circumstance. It's a choice to set myself lower and set them higher. That's love. This love is the exact opposite of that. This is sensual. This is sexual. This is, this is selfish in every respect. The world's love is driven by feelings that motivate actions. Feelings which, the heart being deceitful and desperately wicked, 
lie contrary to the Word of God, lie contrary, in this case, to even human dignity. And so she's saying, if it feels good, do it. And let's fill ourselves with love. This is sensual, this is immoral, this is not biblical love. And we won't get caught. Verses 21 through 23. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. So we read the sad conclusion to our tale. He's convinced. He started out as just an innocent, foolish young man walking by a corner in the darkness of night. He's grabbed, he's kissed, he's allured, he's convinced. And the Bible says that with all of this fair speech, she causes him to yield. She's convinced that this woman, he's convinced that this woman cares for her. He's convinced that this relationship is worth the risk. He's convinced that he won't get caught. He's convinced that it will make him happy. And so he goes after her, Solomon says, as an ox to the slaughter, as a fool to the jail cell. He puts himself in a situation where he is positioning himself to be destroyed. Now, he uses an interesting illustration here. He says, till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare. The idea of a dart, an arrow, striking through the liver. In Hebrew culture, uh, the Hebrews often use body parts to speak of things, right? We even talk about the heart, right? The heart is that seat of uh, emotion and will. And we um, oftentimes talk about the bowels, right? That someone's bowels yearned upon someone. Uh, the idea there, of course, the bowels are the intestines, the idea behind that is, is perhaps if you've ever had that feeling where you've longed for something or there's been a, a deep emotional longing or desire to where you almost kind of feel a little bit sick to your stomach or there's that, that feeling in your stomach of just um, uh, um, that, that reflects the intensity of your desire. That's the idea there. So they have attributed various organs or various parts of the body to various aspects of human desire and emotion as a way um, to describe them, as a way to characterize them. The liver was the seat of sensual passion in, in the Hebrew sort of mindset and in, in, in their characterization here. So this man's killing blow comes through the medium of his lust for sexual immorality. It will destroy him till the dart, till an arrow strikes through his liver, till he is destroyed by the passion, by the sensual passions that he is following to its end, as a bird to the snare. He doesn't even realize that what he's doing as he follows this woman into immoral action is going to destroy him. It's going to destroy his spirit. It's going to bring remorse upon his soul. It's going to bring perhaps disease upon his body. It's going to bring about loss of testimony and, and reputation. It's going to mean terrible things and he doesn't even see it as a bird doesn't see the snare before they're snared. If a fish knew it was going to get hooked, it probably wouldn't bite the, the lure. If a bird knew it was going to get snared, it probably wouldn't seek after the food or whatever it is that's in the snare. In the same manner, this fool has not considered 
the trap that he's falling into. We wrap up the chapter in verses 24 through 27. Solomon comes back to himself, to his son, and he says, Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. So this is the warning. He says, listen closely. When the wisest man who has ever lived, the one who has given divine wisdom by God as a blessing upon him, says to listen closely, it would behoove us to listen closely. Not only that, of course, but we know this to be the inspired word of God. He says, listen closely. Don't decline your heart in that direction. Don't go after the immoral woman. Don't go down her path. She will chew you up and spit you out. When she's finished with you, she will leave you mangled and lying on the side of the road and she'll go on to the next guy. She doesn't actually want you. She wants your destruction. She wants herself. She's slain many men stronger than you, Solomon says. Many mighty men have been destroyed. Of course, we know this from the scriptures. The most obvious example of this being Samson. A man who for all of his strength, for all of his gifts, for all of his abilities, for all that the Lord had given to him, was completely destroyed by a willing woman. By a woman who pretended to have his best interests in mind and flattered him and allured him and then destroyed him. Solomon says, don't think you're strong enough. Don't think you can handle it. The very worst of spiritual destruction is contained in sexual sins. Her house is the way to hell. Her chambers lead to death. Such is the strength of the warning which God gives to men concerning sexual impurity. We're going to apply this morning, and I've got five points of application. Remember, we're talking about protecting our young men. Of course, this is not just for young men. This warning applies well beyond just our young men. But point number one, as we, it relates to this age and our men, remember that this digital age is absolutely fraught with danger. I want to go in the direction of this age. There's, there's a lot more that could be said, obviously, about these things this morning than what I'm going to say. But though human nature hasn't changed, there's still willing women, there's still foolish men. The desire for men and women, as far as sexual impurity and immorality, doesn't change. It's, it's, it's a constant of our sin nature. Uh, as, it's been, as our sin nature has perverted God's design, right, for, for human sexuality. While all of that hasn't changed, you know what has changed? The world has changed quite a bit. No longer does a man need to risk his reputation in order to pursue immoral purposes. No longer does a man need to step out of his home, go to the club, purchase a magazine, and hope that his parents don't find it under his bed. No longer does that need to happen in order to pursue sexual immorality. This great sin is now directly in our homes, where it can be accessed 24 hours a day, with very little accountability or fear of reprisal. 
The intent of the internet is wonderful. And indeed, the internet is a wonderful thing. Information at, at our fingertips. Anything that we'd like. But the internet is awash with sexual immorality. Pornography, digital prostitution. In no other age has it been easier to access than this age. At no other time has it been so easy, particularly for young people, to access this information. There's no other age where this sin has been so accessible to good godly homes. Now, I mentioned this at the outset. One of the biggest problems here is the generation gap. When a mom goes to the store, she's careful to move her son around the magazine aisle, not ask him to go through that. When a mom goes to the store, she's careful to make sure that her sons don't walk through the lingerie portion of the store, unless you go to certain stores where they put it right out front, and then you just don't go to those stores. How do you stop what's on the internet? Even if you don't go looking for it, pop-ups, advertisements. I mean, it's not even just the internet anymore, is it? You can't drive down 94 without seeing an inappropriate billboard. One that 40 years ago would have been considered soft pornography. Commercials, much less the television shows themselves. It's on television. It's on our home computers. It's on cell phones. This is where the danger is. And a young man doesn't need anymore to work up the courage to risk getting caught in order to pursue his sexual passions. He can go online. He can see what he wants to see. He can delete his history. He can clear everything out. And you would never know it unless you're a parent that knows as much about technology as your children. The less you understand parents, the more dangerous it is for your children. You must be educated enough to protect your children from these dangers, or they have a very high chance of finding their way into sin, which you did not intend for them, which they did not even intend for themselves, but which may be spiritually devastating and follow them for the rest of their lives. It's not a game. It's not a joke. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. This is not just me taking something and magnifying it beyond which beyond its its station this is very very serious parents if you don't have filters on your internet you're a fool if you have children that use the internet i mean apart from even yourselves men if you have children that use the internet and you don't have filters you're a fool if you have unfettered access to the television without accountability you're a fool if you allow your children to have a cell phone with Texting or data without accountabilities in place, you're a fool. If you allow your children on social media, kids aren't into Facebook anymore, that was, that's so last generation. Instagram, Snapchat, well those, are, those are, are, aren't as dangerous, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Anytime the primary medium of communication is picture and video, Predators are going to be everywhere. Everywhere. Even texting itself. Multimedia messaging. The generation before Snapchat and Instagram, the big thing was sexting, it's called. 
where people encourage other people to send provocative, revealing pictures about themselves over multimedia messaging. That was last generation because now everyone has data. But maybe you say, oh, I don't have data for my kids. They're safe. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I'm not saying don't trust your children this morning, parents. I'm not saying that you should demand their passwords and look over their shoulder and listen into every phone call. But if you have not established accountability with your children in this digital age, you're playing a very dangerous game with your children. Sexual predators, online prostitution, the proliferation of pornography, the problem of sexting, as I mentioned already. The internet is a sexual wasteland. It's interesting, you know, when you do the top Google results and everything, of course, Google always filters out the, the, the searches for pornography. You don't see that. But the industry is massive. Massive. It's everywhere. And so much of it is free. Why? Because immorality is like a drug. It's addictive. And they know that if they can get people addicted to it, they will pursue it. And generally speaking, it ends up costing money. And that's where the industry makes its money. The internet is a sexual wasteland. So much of it is free. There's nothing that cannot be accessed unless you have protections in place. And there's no technical knowledge required to get it anymore. This digital age is fraught with danger. You need to know that, parents. You need to understand that. If your children are coming to the age of using the internet, and look, my, my child's only six or seven, get online and read stories. Yeah, use the internet for the opposite purpose. Get online and read stories about the people that got addicted at six or seven to sexual immorality. Don't think that it's too young. Protect your children. Protect your children. Point number two, not all harlots come with labels. Um, This woman had the attire of a harlot, but she wasn't in a house of prostitution. He wasn't going to a house of ill repute to find her. She had a good man who has gone on a long journey. Perhaps it was her husband. Perhaps she was a woman that had some other uh, uh, position in society. It used to be, in our culture at least, that one could expect most young people to be honorable and modest and decent, and, and those who were not was obvious. That's the bad person. That's the dangerous person. That's the bad kid. But a simple walk through Walmart shows that discretion is no longer a part of culture. Particularly as it relates to how women dress. Solomon said, I can see she has the attire of a harlot, right? The attire of a harlot is standard attire in our culture for women now. The fact that young ladies believe it's perfectly acceptable to walk around in clothing which leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. And again, this is where the problem comes in. In our culture, in this Me Too era, what, what the third wave feminism has said is, and this is one of their slogans, my little black dress is not an invitation. Right? I'm going to dress provocatively and then you need to control yourself. And you're right. Men need to control themselves. It's absolutely true. But if you dangle a bone in front of a dog, that dog's going to want the bone. If you don't want the dog to snap at the bone, don't dangle the bone in front of the dog. Here's what I'm trying to say. Men have a... Men are men. God has made us a certain way. Men are visual by nature. We're visual by nature. It's just how we are. Different men are different 
uh, have different discipline, have different capacities, have different interests, but men are visual by nature. Men are allured to how women look. Women, if you know that, it ought to affect how you look. If you know that men are going to be distracted, allured, drawn by certain behaviors, attitudes, and, and, and attire, then don't be surprised if you wear that attire and act in that way that men are going to be drawn and allured. Again, I'm not trying to take the impetus off of men to discipline themselves. Take the impetus off of men to guard ourselves. But you know what? It's becoming nearly impossible for men in this culture. Where can I go and not have to deal with fighting the sexual allurement of the culture? I, I, can't, I can't go shopping. I can't drive down the road. I can't turn the television on if I owned one. I can't do that without having something come across my eyes that is going to make my day of serving the Lord in virtue harder. Not all harlots come with labels. One of the big problems is that women don't understand what these sorts of things do to the minds of young men. And even those in Christian circles, often even conservative Christian circles, allow their women to wear things which are wholly inappropriate, far too revealing, indiscreet. And they think nothing of it. I remember there was an article that came out, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, I, I probably should have found it before this sermon. And it was a woman in, in Christian circles, and she had a blog, and she would regularly blog, and she had a blog one day, and she said, why I've stopped wearing yoga pants. And so she gave this blog. It was a very um, balanced, very gracious blog where she said that she had talked to her husband, she had talked to her husband's friends, and as she was talking, she, she recognized that the fact that yoga pants leave absolutely nothing to the imagination is a problem for men. And as men, we think, yeah, duh. But she had never been taught this. She'd never thought this. And she realized that the manner of her attire in front of men was causing men to struggle with their thought life. And she said, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Commendable, right? No. She was practically run, out of, run off the internet by all of her Christian readers who were so angry at her judgmentalism and her legalism. And this is where Christian culture is today. This is Christian culture today that gets so angry at a woman who has decided that she's going to protect the minds of the men in her general sphere of interaction that they run her off the internet. Our culture has a major problem. And when women are told that they have a problem that their attire might be a problem. Not speaking toward their intentions. Ladies, I'm not, I'm not speaking toward your intentions this morning. I'm not saying that you're attempting to cause men to stumble or to fall. But when told about this, generally speaking, as I just mentioned, it causes women to become upset, offended, defensive, rather than concerned and careful. They become upset and accusing men of demanding that women 
make up for man's lack of self-control with what they wear. Well, no. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, and I'm not trying to express that this morning. Again, I hope you're not drawing that. This is not an attack on women. But what I do want to highlight is women, no amount of social conditioning is going to change the fact that men are allured visually. And so if our expectation as godly Christians and your expectation as godly women is that the thing that would draw, that that would attract others to you is not your broidered hair or your garments, as 1 Peter 3 says, but the meek and quiet spirit, then that means there's going to be some obligations upon you and how you present yourself. So our culture is very indiscreet, immoral at worst. The prototypical woman in the eyes of culture is this way. But, but even more than that, what else has third wave feminism made our, our women? You remember reading that, that little bit here in Proverbs 7? She is loud and stubborn. This is, this is a virtue in third wave feminism. Do you remember the Women's March a year and a half ago? Whatever it was? where all of these loud and stubborn women get up and say how proud they are of their indiscretion and immorality and evil? Millions of women coming together to praise their loud stubbornness, the very things that the Bible says are the qualities that you want to flee from. If you see a woman that's that way, her feet abide not in her house. She is loud and stubborn. She has the attire of a harlot. This is the women of American culture. Is it any wonder that our men are struggling so much? But here's the thing. If this is what I have to deal with when I step out my door to go to Walmart, then I had better have things in place to make my home a sanctuary. I had better have protections in place. Father, you had better have protections in place. Our church had better have protections in place to make certain places a sanctuary where I don't have to fight that battle because I'm going to have to fight it every other day of the week, every other moment of the day. And again, we're focusing on men this week, but sexual predation of women, a lot of these young girls are being brought into this culture at a very young age through the same medium, through the internet, through expectations, through peer pressure, through all of those things. Because they think that's what, that's what men want of them, so they're going to give it to them so they can get the attention. Fathers, it's incumbent upon you to teach your women that as well. Not all harlots come with labels. Call it what you will, the attitudes that we see in our culture today are the same type of attitude which is reflected in the woman in this passage. It's commonplace. Women, if I can just speak to you for another moment, don't let this become you. Because if this becomes you, you are the kind of woman the Bible warns against. And don't expect a godly young man to become knocking on your door. He's going to read Proverbs 7, he's going to look at you, and he's going to say, I'm going to steer clear of that. So don't be surprised. Don't expect it if you're going to follow culture down this path. This is the very fabric of our culture, having particularly found its feet in the late 60s, continuing today uninhibited. So men are in a very difficult spot. 
Women with, if I can call it this, the spirit of harlotry. Women with little regard for moral purity. Maybe not by intention, but at least by omission. Little regard for the minds of men and the struggles that men have with their thought life. They are everywhere in this culture. Our culture is so sexually uninhibited that it is expected that young people will be sexually active before leaving high school. It's expected. Statistically, uh, that's the way they teach it. That's what they expect. So sexually unfettered is our culture that immunizations for sexually transmitted diseases have become standard issue for small children now. Parents, young people, does sexually immoral no longer come with labels? It's not just that you're okay in society, but then you can go to the gentleman's club, so poorly named. It's not just that you're okay with society, but you can go find the magazines on the racks at certain, certain establishments. But everywhere else, it's safe. It's not that way anymore. Sexual immorality doesn't come with labels. You can't just send your kid over to the neighbor's house and expect that what they're going to do is virtuous. In our culture, much of what God condemns is seen as standard, normal, everyday life. And this brings us to our third point. Yes, I am talking about your son. Yes, I'm talking about your son. We parents have a problem with believing our children incapable of things. Yeah, my son has this problem, but he wouldn't go that far. We can be afraid to talk to our kids, just assuming that because they're good kids externally, that's, they're fine, their heart is where it needs to be. We don't need to have that conversation with them. As I've read the scriptures and given the warnings, everything in the mind of parents is to say, yes, that is a danger, but not my kid. My kids would never do that. My kids aren't interested in that. Remember that part about the boy going by her corner in the darkness? I can tell you this, parents, and every father knows this, there's no son, with maybe very rare exceptions based upon personality and whatever else, there's no boy that's not going to struggle with this. To say that your son is the rare exception is to be ignorant, to be naive. I'm not calling you parents, again, I'm not calling you to a witch hunt. If you start stalking your children, listening on their phone calls, planting cameras, demanding passwords, if you just become driven by fear rather than protection, then you're crossing lines which will alienate your children from you and cause them simply to want to hide things better. It's not what I'm calling you to do or I'm encouraging you to do. What I'm, I'm encouraging you to do is have care, Safety, understanding. Reject the assumption that your child could not be ensnared because many men stronger than your son have fallen. Many a believing man with a future full of potential for Christ has been destroyed by the willing woman's allurements. Your son may be everything you want him to be or everything that you think him to be, but do you actually know that he's not struggling in this area of his thought life? Do you actually know what he has or has not seen? What he's stumbled across on the internet? Do you actually know what is going through his mind, what's in his heart? Your children ought to be able to pillow their heads at night with a clean conscience. 
Your children ought to be able to pillow their heads at night knowing there's nothing between himself and his parents. You ought to be in a relationship, if at all possible, with your children where you, you want to trust them and they want you to trust them and so they speak to you because they can do so and trust that you're not going to lay the hammer down just because they're struggling. Just because they're struggling. You know what is one of the most discouraging things that I had growing up? One of the most... Dis- I, I had trouble with my thought life. I had trouble with pornography in my teenage years. And I, I, I think that uh, my dad and I have talked about this. I think I'm okay relaying this. One of the things that was hardest for me was that when I came to my parents and I said, I'm having this problem, all I got was punishment. They told me I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do this anymore. And that's all I got. And so, for me attempting to get this right and to get this out of my life, all I got was censuring the things that I enjoyed. I was a computer geek, getting on the internet. Doing, I understood the restrictions. I needed that. I get that. But nothing but censure. And so, what went through my mind? boy, if I'm still struggling with this, I'm not about to tell my parents again. Because all they're going to do is take more stuff away from me. I didn't get any help. I just got punishment. If we want our children, what, what, what our children need to understand is that we love them and we want to help them. And if they're struggling with an area of sin, because you know what? Your children are sinful. You know that? And they're going to struggle. And they're going to have struggles. You know what the best thing you can do for them is? To let them know that you want to help them through it. Help them get to the other side of it. So that they'll come up and they'll tell you, these are my struggles. Help me. Because if your child is a believer, here's what I know. They want help. But maybe they've been ensnared. Point number three. Two young men. Young man, God knows, and if you fight this battle, you need help. I've been primarily talking to parents, fathers. There are men in here, perhaps, that are older who are still struggling with these things. Uh, in, in some ways, I think all men do still uh, um, in, in any number of ways. But to the young man, still under your parents' authority, maybe not, struggling with these things, I don't know what's going through your mind. I just told you, and it's not a secret, I've told many of you before in, in many other capacities that I've had these struggles in my past as well. What you need to know is that God knows. There's a twofold concept to that. Number one, what's done in darkness is not darkness to God. No matter how hard you hide it, the spiritual ramifications of this, those things that we read here, the idea that her, her path leads to hell, the dart that strikes through his liver, the ox that goes to the slaughter, you don't ever have to get caught to have all of those consequences spiritually upon you. But the second part of God knowing is that God understands because he, he made you. 
He built you. He built men the way they are. We're, we're, we're built to be allured by women visually. That's how God made us. It's been perverted by sin, but, but the actual desire itself is built into us. God knows that too. But look, no, I, I'm, I'm confident to say that many of you know technology in a way that your parents don't. I don't know that there are but a handful of things that I can think of filter-wise that I could not get by in, in about 30 minutes of work. You have a filter? Congratulations. It's not going to trouble me because I know computers. I know how they work. I learned many of these things at a fairly young age, teenage years. My parents had no capacity to undo to, 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 they had no knowledge with which to, to stop me from doing things if I wanted to, to, to do them. There's a partnership here. There's a partnership where a part of it is incumbent upon the parent to put the roadblocks in place to protect their children. The other part is upon the young person to submit themselves to their parents and to be helped along in whatever way through accountability. But what you do in darkness, young people, God sees no matter how much technological advantage you have over your parents and what you know that they don't, and so you're not going to get caught, God sees. And there are consequences if you don't get this dealt with. If you fight this battle and you're losing, you need help. Young people, go to your parents, get their help. If you're outside of that authority structure, you still need accountability and help. If you're struggling with these things, I'm talking to a father here that's fighting this battle and you're losing, get the help of the church. Protections are out there. This battle can be won. At the beginning of our time together, we talked about wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's not enough for you to know these things Wisdom comes when you live it. Wisdom comes when you apply it. Wisdom comes when you take what you know and you get it dealt with. We already talked about sexual immorality as kind of like a drug. Uh, pornography addiction is actually settled in medical science today. It's, 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 it's a settled, established addiction. If you're dealing with it, if you're struggling with it, get help. That's what the church is here for. The church is not here to be a collection of sinless people. We all know better than that. The church is a collection of people striving to be sinless. And what are we here for if we can't help each other through something like this? Final point. Fathers, protect your sons proactively. If you don't have filters, get filters. If you don't know how to do that, guess what? Your pastor does. I'd be happy to help you out. Very happy to help you out. If you don't have television guards, get them. If you don't have limits on the technologies your children have access to or strong accountabilities as it relates to those technologies, get them. Let me, for the last time, exhort you unto wisdom. I'm not talking about stalking your children, but may I encourage you to set up a no-secrets policy with your children as it relates to technology? That you have the right at any time to look through their phone? If they have a phone? that you have the right at any time to log into their social media and look through it if they've got social media. May I encourage you just to stay away from social media with your children? <laughs> don't, don't, don't give them access to that. 
they don't need it. It's been proven to be socially harmful, psychologically harmful, emotionally harmful in any number of ways. It has its uses, but its uses are few and its virtues are even fewer. If you can't trust your children, then don't give them the privilege until you can. Your children do not have the right to your trust. Trust is earned. If you have seen that your children have earned trust, then trust them. If you're going to trust them, trust them. There can be accountability. Accountability and trust are not mutually exclusive, nor are they in opposition to one another. And then if you find your children are not trustworthy, then don't trust them until they've earned the right. When your children know your reasons, they know you care. If they aren't doing anything wrong, they won't resent accountability. But if you show that you don't trust them, if you cyber-stalk them, if you uh, treat them as if they're in a jail cell or a prison, then they're going to come to resent it. As I mentioned, if your children have shown themselves untrustworthy, then you ought not to reward them with your trust. But trust is not blind. Accountability is not lacking trust. Accountability is protection. If this balance is not making sense to you, I encourage you to come see me. If anything that I've said is, uh, does not make sense to you, I'd encourage you to come ask me for more information. The last thing I want to do is to turn you into some sort of crazy person and your children into some, you know, feel like they're in some sort of prison. I don't want to make you paranoid. I don't want to make you uh, uh, fearful at every turn. But I do want to make you aware. And because technology is changing so quickly, you know, it's only been 10 years since the iPhone came out. And the iPhone changed the world, changed how we interact with technology, changed mobility. 10 years is all it's been since true mobile internet experience. I remember when I got my first computer, 12 years old, IBM Aptiva, 233 megahertz. 32 megabytes of RAM. Things have changed a lot in those days, since those days. Technology is moving so quickly. Parents, you probably have not caught, kept up unless you're someone like me who just geeks out on this stuff. And that's okay that you haven't kept up. But... Don't allow your children to enter into that world under your accountability if you don't know what you're dealing with, if you don't know what you're talking about, because it is a dangerous place, the internet. And that is my encouragement to you today. Perhaps at some point we can do a class that talks more about these technologies on, a, on an evening and we can get you all up to speed if, if that's something that would interest you. But for today, I simply would like to exhort you Fathers, if you are not being proactive about protecting your sons, and again, that was my focus on this particular sermon. We can broaden it to children as a whole. If you're not being proactive, um, you're, you're missing out on a part of your responsibility here. Your son's direction might be altered in life 
by the decisions you make either to or not to proactively protect them from sexual immorality in a culture such as this. And if I can encourage you, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I don't have all the foolproof technologies. But if I can encourage you that if you're going to have the internet, television, allow your children to have cell phones, you need to learn enough to protect them. And if you don't know enough, then may I just encourage you to keep them from them until you do. We need to protect our children because while society and culture has changed, human nature has not. The warning of Proverbs 7 is just as real today. The scenario of Proverbs 7 happens thousands of times a day online, much less live in real life. And it is something that that the Word of God warns us strongly to guard ourselves against. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.